The following sermon is by Boyd Johnson, pastor of Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. More information about Treasuring Christ Church can be found at tccathens.org. As we take up our study of Revelation, we've come now to the final judgments that end the tribulation. The tribulation, as we've learned, is the seven-year period of God's wrath in which He will judge the world before Christ's return. His judgments will come in three waves with 21 judgments in all. The first wave of judgments are called the seven seal judgments and are described beginning in chapter 6. First, A judgment of peace, where the world unites itself under a single world ruler, which we've come to find out in chapter 13, is the Antichrist. The second judgment, second seal judgment, a judgment of war, where the whole world is engulfed in a battle unlike any that's come before it. Third, A judgment of famine that afflicts the entire planet. Fourth, a judgment of death where a fourth of all the earth, man and beast, dies. Fifth, a judgment of the martyrs where God promises to answer their prayers for vengeance. Sixth, a judgment of cosmic chaos with a series of ecological disasters including a great earthquake that shakes the whole world, an eruption of volcanic activity, a meteor shower that pelts the earth, and the vanishing of the sky as we know it. That's all in those early chapters of Revelation which we've studied. And then comes the seventh sealed judgment, which we found out contains seven more judgments. This second wave of judgments is called the trumpet judgments. And they're described beginning in chapter 8. The first trumpet judgment will scorch a third of the earth's vegetation. The second will kill a third of all sea life. The third will poison a third of all freshwater sources. The fourth will dim and shorten the heavenly lights by a third. The fifth will let loose locust-like demons who swarm the earth to torment the ungodly for five months. The sixth will release demons to spread across the earth to kill a third of mankind. And the seventh trumpet judgment will unleash seven more judgments. This third wave of judgments is called the bold judgments. And they're described in chapter 16. Last week we began studying these bold judgments And found that first, a judgment will afflict the ungodly with painful sores. Second, a judgment afflicting the sea and killing not just one-third in it, but everything in it. Third, a judgment afflicting the freshwater sources and turning them into blood. Fourth, a judgment afflicting the ungodly with scorching heat. And fifth, a judgment afflicting the ungodly with total darkness. Now that's where we left off last week. 
with two more bold judgments to study in chapter 16. Now, I want to remind you that these bold judgments in chapter 16 are the final judgments of God in the tribulation. They are the last in the series. In chapter 15, verse 1, John writes that with these, the wrath of God is finished. In chapter 15, verse 8, he again indicates that the bold judgments are the end of the tribulation. And we'll see in chapter 16, verse 17, in a little bit, that God Himself will declare from heaven the end of the tribulation judgments once the seventh bull afflicts the earth. And after this, Jesus will return. He'll return also in judgment, in wrath, and finish off all the ungodly who remain. So let's finish studying the bold judgments and pick off where we left off last week in verse 12. Revelation 16, verse 12 through the end of the chapter. Here's what John the Apostle sees on the island of Patmos. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine the fury of His wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Now these final bull judgments, these seven in this chapter, could be called the great tribulation judgments. The great tribulation judgments. Not only are they more devastating than all the judgments that come before them, but the Greek word for great, megas, occurs nine times in this chapter alone. In verse 1, the voice from heaven is great. In verse 9, the heat from the sun is great. In verse 12, the river Euphrates is great. In verse 14, the day of God is great. In verse 18, the earthquake is great. In verse 19, the city is great and Babylon is great. And in verse 21, the hailstones are great and so is the plague. Everything about this chapter is great. These are the great judgments. 
what else can be said about God and what he will do to the earth in his wrath other than it will be great? Words can't fully describe the devastation that's going to come upon the earth. The final judgments of God against the ungodly are very great, and that's emphasized in this chapter. And so let's take a look at the sixth bold judgment, beginning in verse 12. Again, John writes, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. At first glance, this doesn't seem like much of a judgment at all compared to the destructive power of the judgments before. This one dries up the Euphrates River. Now, the Euphrates River, as you maybe know, begins in modern-day Turkey, flows through Syria, through Iraq, and empties out, once it unites with the Tigris, in the Persian Gulf. So it's an important river, even today. What you might not know or might not remember from the Old Testament is that the Euphrates was also the eastern border of the land that God had given to Abraham and his descendants. The promised land extended all the way east to the Euphrates River. When Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land, they were supposed to take possession of the land from the Mediterranean Sea in the west all the way to the Euphrates River in the east. Well, they never did. Not anything close to that because of their disobedience. Now, rivers such as the Euphrates have always played uh, an important role establishing boundaries between nations. But in ancient days, they were especially important defense barriers that protected nations from invasion. And the Euphrates River was one such river that not only marked boundaries between nations, but also provided a natural defense for nations. In fact, history records that thousands of years ago, the Euphrates River dried up. And the Persian king, Cyrus, marched his troops from east to west across the Euphrates River, it was now dried up, and invaded Babylon and conquered Babylon. He did it because the Euphrates River was dried up and it provided him easy access to get all of his troops across. Well, verse 12 tells us that the Euphrates will once again dry up, and this time during the tribulation. That doesn't surprise us because we found out earlier, especially in chapter 11, that there will be many droughts to come during the tribulation. And the Euphrates here dries up. And this will give the kings from the east an opportunity to invade the land belonging to Israel, to invade the promised land. Now, we really can't speculate which nations are represented by kings of the east. 
I've told you again and again, do not practice newspaper eschatology. That is, don't read the newspaper and import what you see going on through the newspaper into your understanding of the end times and revelation. None of this has occurred. This is all future. So whatever you're reading in the newspaper has no reference to what we're studying here in Revelation. It's to come. So again, we can't speculate which nations are represented by the kings of the East for at least two reasons. We know geographically, at least right now, that would be the present nations of Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, China, maybe Japan. But we can't say definitively it'll be those nations that invade Israel because they might not exist by the time the tribulation occurs. We have no idea how far in the future this will happen. And they might not be here when the tribulation takes place. But furthermore, and this we have biblical warrant for, we've seen that God's judgments, particularly the sixth seal with that earthquake, will rearrange the geography of the earth. So the land masses that are currently east of, the, of Israel may not be the land masses that are east during the tribulation. We just don't know. All we know is that there will be kings in the east, and it's these kings which will invade the promised land. They'll have the opportunity to move their armies west across the Euphrates River, apparently that river still around, toward Jerusalem. And these eastern kings will be joined by kings from all over the world. John writes in verse 13, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. John sees in this verse three unholy beings. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Now in chapter 13, we study each one of these in depth. These are the three members of the unholy trinity. At least that's what we call them. The three members of the unholy trinity. The dragon is Satan. We saw that in chapter 12. The beast is the Antichrist who will rule the earth during the tribulation. We saw that in chapter 13. And the false prophet is the unholy priest of the Antichrist who demands that the world worship the Antichrist. Again, that's in chapter 13, the second half. So here's an unholy trinity, and John sees something coming out of their mouths. He says, sees coming out of their mouths three unclean spirits. The unclean spirits are demons, according to verse 14. And John sees that these three members of the unholy trinity summon, that's why they're coming out of the mouth, summon three demons. The vision shows the demons coming out of their mouths because these members are summoning or calling out three, he describes them as frog-like demons. The demons are likened to frogs not so much probably because of their appearance, but because of their filthiness. Frogs live near water. 
and were unclean according to the laws of the Old Testament. According to Leviticus, frogs were among the river creatures that were an abomination to God's people. And these demons are filthy, vile spirits, like frogs. They are filthy, vile spirits, even by demonic standards. And they're summoned and sent across the earth according to verse 14. They are demonic spirits, he writes, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So they go and perform signs. Signs by Satan or the Antichrist or the false prophet are always designed to deceive. So these demons will go to the kings of the world and deceive them. And as the eastern kings move west, these demons will incite nations from the rest of the world to join them in a battle in the land of Israel. Now their battle will be against God. And God Himself will wage war on them, and it will become known, as it says here, the great day of God the Almighty. The great day of God the Almighty. The Old Testament prophets called this the day of the Lord. The time of God's great judgment upon the nations. When the nations assemble in the land of Israel, Christ's return will be very near. So in verse 15, Christ interjects Himself into this vision and pronounces a blessing on all those who trust in Him. All those who are ready for His return. He says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. He says he'll come like a thief, Jesus says. He'll come like a thief, which means he'll come unexpectedly to those who are unprepared. You don't expect a thief to break into your house, and Jesus will come like that. He'll come by surprise to those who are unprepared for Him. But those who are awake, those with their garments on, that is, those who are ready for Jesus to come back and watching for Him, even during these days in the tribulation, they will be blessed during these terrible days of judgment. Since they're ready for Jesus and clothed, spiritually speaking, with His righteousness, they won't be caught off guard and destitute when Jesus returns. God will bless those who trust Him all the way to the end. Well, this is a reminder to be ready for Christ's return. To be ready. Surely these words of Jesus will be a great comfort to believers during the tribulation who see all these disasters going on around them, seeing everything get worse, not get better. And they'll think of these words. These words of Jesus, which are uttered to them, which will be preserved for them to remember. Blessed is the one who stays away, keeping his garments on. According to verse 16, the nations will indeed come together 
And John sees that the demons will assemble the nations at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The word Armageddon in Hebrew means hill or mountain of Megiddo. Mountain of Megiddo or hill of Megiddo. Megiddo was an ancient city situated on a large mound, which in archaeological terms it's called a tell, T-E-L. Large mound. And it's located in what's now northwest Israel, not far from Nazareth. Southwest of the Sea of Galilee. Today, as it was in ancient times, Megiddo is surrounded by a sprawling, fertile valley that stretches from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Jordan River, quite a distance. When Napoleon visited the area, it said that he looked across the valley and remarked that it's the perfect battlefield. And in fact, throughout the centuries, hundreds of battles have been fought in this valley. And at the end of the tribulation, this valley, this place of Armageddon, will be the final battlefield on earth. So Armageddon is the name of a place in which the final battle on the earth will be fought between God and the ungodly nations. This will be where the nations of the world gather to make war on God and His people. Now likely they'll assemble all across the land, all across the promised land of Israel. But this will be the central battlefield. And again, the trigger for all this happening will be the drying up of the Euphrates River. That drought will prompt the eastern kings to begin their march across the dry riverbed and other nations will join them in the land of Israel. They're going to come looking to extinguish God's people, Jew or Gentile. And for once and all, and all to win the war against God. Come to win the war against God. But all of it will be a trap that God has set. God will be assembling the nations, bringing them together for their own destruction. The Old Testament prophets predicted that in the last days, God would gather all the nations of the earth for final judgment. For example, in Joel 3.2, a passage we looked at a few weeks ago, the Lord says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. Well, we saw a few weeks ago, the valley of Jehoshaphat is the same valley that we're talking about here, the place of Armageddon. God will judge the nations there. In Zephaniah 3.8, the Lord declares, My decision is to gather nations, 
to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. That's what's going on in this bold judgment. The assembly of the nations and pouring out His judgment upon them. Zechariah 14. The prophet speaks on behalf of the Lord and writes, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. Even Psalm 2 alludes to such a time as this. The psalmist writes, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's get free from God. Let's come against God, win the war, and be free from God and His Messiah, Christ. Then the psalmist says, but he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. Prediction of Christ coming and returning. And when Christ does come and return, according to verse 9, He shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the sixth bold judgment is one that prepares all the ungodly nations for complete annihilation in accordance with what the Old Testament prophets prophesied. And that brings us to the seventh and final bold judgment, beginning in verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. This bowl is poured out in the air. Now, air, of course, surrounds the earth. It's what we breathe. So the idea here is that this final judgment is as pervasive as the air we breathe. Everything that takes place in this judgment takes place everywhere at once. And when this bowl is poured out, a voice from the throne in the temple of heaven, will proclaim, it is done. Now this loud voice is the voice of God. He's the one, according to the end of chapter 15, who is seated on His throne in heaven. During these bold judgments, He's the only one in the temple in heaven. And His declaration here, it is done, signals that the judgments come to an end with this seventh bowl judgment. With it, He'll bring about the complete destruction of all who rebel against Him so that there will be no need for further judgments when all is poured out and Christ comes. This is a frightening announcement. It is done. It's a frightening announcement. Because it means that the time of God's patience is over. It means that there's going to be no more mercy, no more grace to be poured out. None of that given to the unregenerate. The opportunity to repent will be no more. 
And just as the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments closed with a divine thunderstorm, so too does this one in verse 18 after God Himself declares it is done. Here comes the crescendo. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. These judgments come from the throne of God Almighty. God's fury has come upon them for their wickedness. And along with them will also come yet another earthquake. This earthquake is greater than any before it. It will shake the whole world. Again, this won't be the first earthquake of the tribulation, but none will be so large as this one. There was an earthquake in the sixth seal judgment, which rearranged the geography of the earth. But this one will be more devastating than that one. This earthquake will be felt worldwide. That is, every point on earth will be the epicenter. There won't be an epicenter in one place and everywhere it's felt, everywhere will be the epicenter. And the next two verses describe its effect. Verse 19, The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. The great city will be split into three parts. That's probably best understood to be a revived city of Babylon. Ancient Babylon, the ancient city of Babylon, was situated on the Euphrates River, which was just mentioned earlier in this chapter. And Babylon was also referred to as Babylon the Great in chapter 14, verse 8. That's the last city to be called great in this book. And in chapters 17 and 18, Babylon will be called the great city numerous times. So it seems best to think that this great city is a revived city of Babylon. Apparently, the ancient city of Babylon will be revived during the tribulation, perhaps as a political headquarters of the Antichrist. Throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, there have been rulers who have tried to revive Babylon as a great city controlling an empire. As I mentioned before, the most recent was Saddam Hussein. He didn't get very far. But this city, this great city, a revived city of Babylon, will be split into three parts when the earthquake comes. It's hard to know what that means. But when it happens, it'll be clear. Why three parts? It's hard to say why it'll be split into three parts, but perhaps to symbolize the threefold downfall of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophets. Whatever the reason, it'll be a key sign that the seventh bold judgment has come. The rest of the cities of the nations will also fall along with this revived city of Babylon. All the cities around the world will be destroyed. Every city will be leveled. All of them totally destroyed. 
And also on this day, God will remember Babylon the Great. Here I think John is referring to the Antichrist empire as Babylon the Great, as we saw, I believe, in chapter 14, where it was referred to as Babylon, the Antichrist's empire. The anti, yeah, the ancient, uh, in chapter 14 is where we find that, the ancient empire of Babylon, you might remember, was one that was considered full of idolatry and full of wickedness, and the Antichrist's empire will come in the same way, and God will vent His fury on the Antichrist's empire throughout the world by obliterating every remnant of it through this earthquake. Verse 20 adds that not only will all the cities be destroyed, but it will affect, again, the geography of the earth. Every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. This is an earthquake that is so great that it levels the mountains. Whether on land or on sea, every mountain will crumble, every island will collapse to the ocean floor. This is an incredible power that God will unleash. The God who had the power to create the world will use His power to destroy it. The Old Testament prophets, again, predict this kind of destruction. In Isaiah 13.13, the Lord declares, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. In Isaiah 40, verses 4 and 5, another possible allusion to this event. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Everything leveled and then the glory of the Lord and the presence of Christ comes back. Even Jeremiah in chapter 4, verse 26 of his book, foreshadows the seventh bold judgment as he narrates the destruction of ancient Babylon in his day, but foreshadows the future destruction of the Antichrist's empire. He says, I looked and behold, the fruitful land was a desert and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord before his fierce anger. Jeremiah saw the destruction of ancient Babylon, possibly is a prophecy also of the destruction of future Babylon. Now, if everything isn't destroyed by the shaking of the earth, it'll be destroyed by what falls from the sky. Verse 21, And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. We know living in Georgia that hail can do a number on your car. And even small hail can do that. These hailstones are like blocks of ice, 100 pounds each falling from the sky. Whatever is left will be pulverized by these hailstones. And so in chapter 16, we have the great final outpouring of the wrath of God. 
Now, amazingly, amazingly, some will live through it. Or at least long enough until Christ comes back on the tail end of this seventh bowl judgment. He'll come and He'll finish off the ungodly. And Again, we'll see that in chapter 19. But here in this chapter, God reveals to us what He will do at the end of the tribulation. This is how angry He is at sin. This is really only an echo of His fury. God is angry at sin. All sin. Not just future sin of the tribulation. Your sin now. My sin now. He's angry at that. And He's either poured out His wrath on Christ for your sin, or He will pour out His wrath on you when you meet Him. And these pictures in chapter 16, again, are just a foreshadow of His wrath in hell. He will pour out on all who haven't turned to Christ. So these are warnings to all who haven't repented. They're not just a a guidebook for those who live in the tribulation. They're for us right now to warn us of how angry God is with sin. So the question is, are you ready for Christ's return? Are you ready for Christ's return? How would you know? Are you ready for Christ's return? What's the condition of your soul? Is it ready to meet Jesus? If He came now, would He catch you in secret sin? Would He catch you embracing sin? We need to think carefully on our lives. We need to put ourselves on trial with the Scriptures. And see if we're really in the faith. This is the 41st sermon from Revelation. Week after week, we've seen wrath, the wrath of God. And that it's coming. It's as certain that Christ will come and judge the earth as it is that He came the first time. And yet you could come week after week and hear God's plan for the future and hear His wrath and hear week after week that there was a plan put in place to rescue you from His wrath and yet, in hardness of heart, you could sit here and not embrace Christ, but be embracing your sin and have the judgment of Christ on you. And so I want to tell you once again how to be rescued. Jesus Christ came. He died on the cross. The reason He died on the cross was not for His own sin. He never did anything wrong. He died to pay the penalty for sin for all who believe. He died to take the wrath of God in your place if you would believe. And so why would you die? Why would you go on embracing your own sin? 
Why wouldn't you turn from your sin and embrace Christ, but instead go headfirst into hell? Why would you do that? Are you ready for Christ's return? The offer is here. One day the offer won't be here anymore. There'll be no more mercy. There'll be no more grace. And that's not just true in the tribulation. That can happen in your life. Where God shuts it down and offers you no more opportunity to repent. Confess and repent of anything you find in your life that you'd be ashamed of if Jesus came back. Do that. Take inventory of your life. Put yourself under trial with the Scriptures. And whatever you see in the Scriptures where your life doesn't match up, confess that sin and repent of it. And ready yourself for Christ's return. Let's pray together. Father, You know now that anyone here who has not trusted in Christ, their blood is not on my hands. Father, I've told them the truth. They've heard the Gospel. I've asked them, as You've commanded me, to repent and believe in Christ. And so if there is anyone who hears this message and has not thrown themselves upon Your mercy by embracing, leaning on, trusting in, believing in Christ, then I pray that You would put them now under a weight of conviction, knowing that their guilt will have to be paid by themselves if they do not now turn and embrace Your Son, the One You sent as the rescue plan from Your wrath. And Father, for the rest of us who have trusted in Your Son, we pray that we would take sin seriously in our lives, to grow in holiness. We pray that You would surface in our own hearts and minds the things that we do, the things that we think about, the things that we enjoy that don't please You. Sharpen again our consciences, even in places that we've dulled our consciences because of ignoring it while we rush into sin. Sharpen our consciences. Help us to be ready to confess sin wherever we find it. Knowing that's the path of love, that's the path of joy, that's the path of peace. And if we haven't found peace, if we haven't found joy, it is because there remains yet unconfessed sin in our lives. We want to be happy. And You want us to be happy. But we also know, Father, that we can't be happy and hold on to our sin. So cause conviction in all believers here and help us to confess our sin to You and find the freedom that comes from forgiven sin. Father, thank You for sending Your Son 
who died on our behalf. What a great cost. And what a great gift. What a great Savior. What a great salvation from our great God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not alter the content in any way without permission. Treasuring Christ Church exists to spread a passion for the fame of Christ's name in Athens and around the world. We invite you to visit Treasuring Christ Church online at tccathens.org. There you'll find other resources available to you and information about our upcoming gatherings.